Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is Monday, August 14th. Um, I'm pretty excited about the show we've got for you today. We're going to be doing something that we've been talking about doing for a while, which is the anatomy of a bestseller. Um, we're going to kind of talk through like really what I think we would both consider the dream scenario of a book. The from, dream team. Exactly. Like if you, if you, if something could go – and it kind of stems from this thought experiment, right? Like if something could go exactly how you wanted it to with the publication of a book, how would it go? Is sort of the question we're trying to answer. If you today. could dealt the perfect hand so that you yeah. would win, right, the lottery exactly. essentially. So, like, we're going to kind of talk through that as a means of kind of discussing the publishing process on the whole and like the various bits that people are paying attention to as they work on books. Um, but uh, before that, how about the basic rundown? Huh? Yes, absolutely. So our query episode was supposed to go live, folks, this Thursday, August 17th. Um, <laughs> except for I am leaving for New York City tomorrow at 530 in the morning. In New York! Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and so Wow, we... it's amazing that we had Alicia Keys on the show. So, um, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to record that on Wednesday because I'm going to be where, Eric? In New York! (laughs) So that will be coming to you the same day as our next free episode, August 22nd. I can't wait to listen back to this and really regret doing that. (laughs) Twice. You did it twice? I know. We didn't plan that either. That's why I can't, you know, contain myself. (sighs) Um, Our writing by reading episode will uh, will be going that Two days later, on mm-hmm. August 24th, mm-hmm. and we're really excited. We're going to be doing The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, mm-hmm. which we have talked about on the show before. Yeah, no, it'll be exciting to dig into that. That'll be awesome. Yeah, Eric's finally reading it, which I'm super excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our first Pages show will go live August 31st. Yep. So we have a fun bit of news that comes to us via Twitter and also the Moscow Times, which is a sentence I never thought I would utter. <laughs> um, so in case you've heard of her, uh, V.E. Schwab, author V.E. Schwab, also known as Victoria Schwab, um, who wrote the Darker Shade of Magic books mm-hmm. um, that comes out via tour, um, had had her book purchased by a Russian publisher. And then she found out through a reader who had read both the Russian version and the American version that the Russian publisher had, unbeknownst to her, cut an entire subplot of her book out. Yeah. um, So there's, well, I mean, the key salient detail here or like the reason that this became such a news item was that the subplot was um, the... It was gay. Yeah, it was the, it was a gay it was like a gay romance plotline, right? And like so for the Russian edition, they just decided to do away with that um, for the Russian audience, which obviously um, you know poses all kinds of problems, right? For the, let's just like so let's just start for like the book itself, yeah. right? Because um, one. The book stops making sense. Yeah, it's, cut. that romance is integral to the plot. It makes it doesn't make sense the way that people interact with each other without yeah. that plot. Well, and yeah, Rosman, I mean, who's the Russian publisher, just just cut it out. They just cut. Yeah, no. So they cut it. And um, I was on like I, I, you know, I went to the greatest source of objective information there is, which is Reddit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and like all the fans, you know, the book, and I haven't read this book, but they, everyone was just kind of like bummed that this got cut, obviously for all the many like social and publishing reasons we're about to talk about, but also just because 
like you sort of remove the heart of the book when you remove a storyline like this, right? Like you change a text when you do this. You make a story something other than what it is and things quit making sense. And, um, you know, beyond that, like I think it's useful to kind of examine like why like why do this, right? Like why would the translator um, get rid of – a whole a whole plot line and because of the law yeah so in in 2013 <laughs> um russia passed nationwide legislation banning quote the promotion of non-traditional relationships to children um so that means like Ooh. queer content can't be marketed to children so you can have queer storylines in books they just need to be labeled 18 plus like i don't know i'm trying to like think about why they would why i mean this is this. an adult and, book you know yeah. like it's for adults yeah um it's you know it's it, i don't know but what so it's it's a shame and and there's not too much to say about it beyond that other than you know victoria schwab is looking to pull the book with the publisher yeah, she's ready to cancel the contract yep yep she's she's going yeah, to she cancel. should frankly yeah she should but one one thing that it that it brought up for me is kind of just the the big nebulous idea around like what a publisher is allowed to do with a book mm-hmm and of course, it's a little bit different with translation rights, yeah. Because um, those are entirely different contracts. But one thing I realized is like a lot of, a lot of writers just don't know. <laughs> yeah. They don't know what publishers can and can't do with their content. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's tricky. Like with with uh, um, you know, like translation agreements, like the agreement is to faithfully reproduce the work, mm-hmm. right? Like is to translate in a manner that reflects the original book. Like a translator is not allowed, for instance, to, um, you know, fundamentally change the text. And it sounds like that's obviously that's what's happened here. Right. I mean, when you're cutting a storyline, like, you know, what would be acceptable is like maybe the, you know, like the prose language, you know, like the rhythm of the prose or something is different in another language. Or like, you know, maybe things, um, you know, don't land the certain way tonally um, in another language. But to... Uh, to um, intentionally remove a storyline is is tricky. It's problematic, and it's especially both when we're talking about the reason that they've done this is to um, get rid of a, a queer storyline for yeah. Aiden <laughs> to abide by a <laughs> fairly unprogressive law. Right? And for and for an American author, yeah. you know, an author yeah. that is originally published yeah. from. And an American publisher, I mean, copyright is kind of one of the only things sacred in our in our legislature. Right. So, um, you know, you you mess with copyright. You are in a whole world of hurt. Um, And and I know, you know, Macmillan's basic contracts, just like everybody else's, is that they're allowed to make standard like style and style changes to yeah. fit their to yeah. fit their house style right. and you know very customary right. like editorial changes like this thing isn't consistent and that sort of thing none of that comes anywhere close no though, to and also yeah. the author gets to have the final look at it and if you know the only time that the publisher is ever allowed to make those changes without mm-hmm. the author is if the author misses the deadline well that's what's strange about this story i think too and you, you raise a good point that like Author approval does exist, and I guess it's tricky with you know something like this, where presumably the author does not does not read Russian, you know. Um, but you would expect them to like have more of a fleshed out conversation with her if they decided to you know cut a storyline. Like, man, I would be like I'm They're I would be as insistent and yeah. as incensed as she is. They're and claiming I, that they told the agent. Yeah. So. 
I don't know. It's tricky. I mean, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Like, maybe this – like, I could, you know, see a scenario where, like, they raise it, like, opaquely with the agent and yeah. she, like, doesn't quite get around to it yet. And it sounds like, you know, to, like, dealing with it with the author yet. But um, – and then, you know, obviously it sounds like neither the publisher nor the agent had control over the moment when the author found out that this yeah. happened. You know, like, they sort of lost containment on the story. <laughs> and – but it's – I don't know. It's upsetting and it, it raises – like to me, um, it's – you know, it's tough because it does it does reflect a certain amount of <laughs> – and like on this show, you know, we're not exactly um, here, you know, standing up for, you know, the beacon of social progress of America. You know, we're often on the other side of things, you know, with um, the way we sort of view this country. But this would seem to be an instance where, um, you know – the book we had here sure seemed like it might be better than the book they were planning to publish in Russia. And um, I don't know. It's a bummer. And it sounds like she, you know, at the end here of this article on the Moscow Times, you know, she says um, it would have been better not to publish the book at all. Yeah. And um, I think she's right. I think she's right. I think because she is too. if you're cutting those sorts of things without, you know, the consent of the author, then there's like, don't, then just don't acquire. Like, I'm interested in why. Um, you know, how the acquisition got made and how – because presumably they read it, you know, when they decided to buy it, right? Like, you know, this book – someone at this at this publisher read the book in English, you know, and like made a decision on whether or not to acquire it in, you know, for Russian. And clearly they, they must have read that this happened and like they talked to the translator and stuff and there was all this stuff. And it's like if you're planning to fundamentally change it that much – like why why do you want it you know and i guess the reason is that it, you know it's a fairly popular book and well and this is the, the this one was the second in the series yeah so already had the first one yeah. already really successful yeah. with it um and the second one was getting a lot of buzz people yeah. were really excited about the cover yeah people were you know looking forward to it right and i don't i don't remember where i read this to be honest but like from what i could see from some discussion um is that the third book in this series really hinges on a an, a queer plot line. Just gay as hell. Right, exactly. Like, gay but, as hell. But like even it's even more integral to the story than um than it was in this in the second book. And so um like her decision to, you know, cancel the contract if she's actually able to follow through with that would seem to be a good one just purely from like a publishing standpoint because how in the world are they gonna work around that, you know? And I don't know. It's all just and we all know out, that but. everybody wanted the parental advisory CDs, not the regular <laughs> ones. So. I would love can you okay, so how funny would it be to have parental advisory stickers on books? Like I mean, here. well, they kind of have a version yeah. of that for um magazines, you know, the yeah. ones that are like the 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 sexy magazines well, the ones they that have like nudes, yeah. Yeah, they have they have them in the black packaging. <laughs> They're like tucked in the back, yeah. 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 It's but that seems like a far cry from what we're dealing with here, which is like a very standard like novel. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's hard. And it's hard because also like in America, the parental advisory kind of thing, like our rating system is so skewed across all genres because violence is never seen as as hard as like yeah. is never considered as as harshly as sex. We have an imperfect system as well. We do. We have an imperfect say, system, but, like, but also like how bad is a sex scene when it's words on a page versus like pictures of boobs? Yeah. Yeah. You know? it's, it's tricky. But um 
I don't know. It's just kind of a it's a weird example here of like I can just um, picture some like old lady going to Barnes and Noble and putting like <laughs> advisory stickers or like X's on all of, yeah. or like covering up right. like the bosomy lady right. on the romance right. cover. Right. I actually get a lot of joy out of that yeah. vision. I hope that someone does that. I hope that there's some some lady who's out here standing up for the decency and of then American going to get folk. a Cinnabon. <laughs> Yeah. Standing uh, or speaking, speaking of something that I enjoy very much, mm-hmm. um, I I want to submit to all of our dear listeners a very special edition of the James Patterson book of the week. <laughs> very special. Yes, I'm excited. Yes. Yeah. So this book um, goes live actually t- today, which is weird because books usually usually release on Tuesday, and it you know it it comes out. Monday, August 14th, 2017, yeah. by James Patterson. Um, and it's called The Store. <laughs> God damn, I love James Patterson. It's $27 in hardcover. I'm no longer, I'm no longer an ironic fan of James Patterson. You're actually like, just I just a love fan. it. Like, I love that we can make every noun and make it into a best-selling novel. So the store, the cover is really amazing um, because it's just a woman running away. And then the um, kind of the the line underneath the store is the store is always watching. Mm-hmm. So here's here's the copy. The store is watching you. Jacob and Megan Brandeis have gotten jobs with the mega-successful, ultra-secretive store. That's store with a capital S. Seems perfect. Seems safe. But their lives are about to become anything but perfect. Anything but safe. Always watching. Especially since Jacob and Megan have a dark secret of their own. They're writing a book that will expose the store. A forbidden book. A dangerous book. Always. And if the store finds out, there's only one thing Jacob, Megan, and their kids can do. Run for their bloody lives, which is probably impossible because the store is always watching. (laughs) So (laughs) um, (laughs) what's funny about this to me is not his, you know, the very kind of bland premise, but – I don't know. They threw kids in there. (laughs) He 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 didn't get the children involved. Which is key, um, but does it sound like does it sound like a certain uh, you know online retailer to you? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> because, Eric. Why don't you tell well, me? So, well, so he went on he went on CNBC and did an interview about this book, and like basically they just kept asking him, "Is this book about Amazon? Like, is this book about Jeff Bezos?" And his response kept being. You know, no, 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 it's not. It's just about the store. It was a thing I totally made up in my head. I mean, it's nothing to do with Amazon. And, of course, you know, this is ignoring, like, the very public spats James Patterson has had with Amazon. Like, during, you know, you can go back and listen to our Amazon episode. Like, Patterson figures into that uh, that whole saga pretty heavily as one of the bigger Hachette authors. Um, but, yeah, he decided to he decided to get mad at Amazon in book form, which is hilarious to me. Because it reminds me of the very first clip you and I released to the world when we were still like planning out this even show. before our first yeah. episode. It yeah. was just like the sample to like get people to even like know. It's who on we are. SoundCloud. Oh, yeah, you can go yeah. listen to it. It's our first post. It was. 
<laughs> it was when James Patterson decided to write a novel. And I think it got canceled. I don't even remember, right? I think it, yeah, like, he pulled it. But he basically wrote a novel about how someone went and murdered Stephen King. I think the book was called The Murder of Stephen King. It was. <laughs> it was. And then Stephen King, who, and, and yeah. Stephen King and um, James Patterson have like insulted each other for years. Yeah, so like the point is that this new thing that Patterson is doing is really not that far detached from the thing he always does, which is, like, decide to, like, pick whoever it is he's mad at and, like, basically, like, his entire, like, publishing catalog is his diary (laughs) where he just, like, gets – he, like, gets super mad and then writes a book that is about as thinly veiled as you can possibly get. Correct. And just, like, make it about them and then, like, go online and – you know, say, no, 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 it's not It's not about Amazon. It's not about Bezos. It's just about a giant online retailer that controls everything. <laughs> I love in this article he criticizes Amazon. Um, he talks about how uh, – you know, they own the Washington Post. They're, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're taking over mm-hmm. news, they're taking over books, mm-hmm. et cetera. But then, um, <laughs> and then he says, the readers can pre order the store on Amazon. Sure. That was funny. He really gets owned there. When, <laughs> he owns himself. When yeah, it's that's when he has to eventually encourage his readers to visit the site. He's try he's written a whole book about bashing uh to buy his book. That that I did find funny. The other thing is if you watch the little video here, um he he gives this interview to <laughs> to CNBC and like the host of the show keeps being like, Well, you know, this isn't you know, this is a pretty um, you know, it's a pretty light treatment, you know, like it's not that, you know, this is a thriller. It's not really that deep of a book. And at one point he just like snaps at like the constant barb that his writing isn't like super deep and sophisticated. And he says, of course it's deep. I wrote it. <laughs> at the end. It's incredible. Yeah. So, um, but like, yeah, he seems to just be like airing his grievances over like tech, tech billionaires, um, which again, like. More power to him. I love that um, someone is just, like, writing books about everything he's mad at. This would be, like, me writing a book about, like, Anything. the lattes being, like, $5 instead of 4 You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, and, like, having it sell, like, you know, thousands and thousands of copies. Um, yeah, no, but I'm, I'm very pleased. I am very pleased so for excited for this special book. It's very special. For the James Patterson Book of the Week. This, this might be my favorite James Patterson Book of the Week. He referred to it as very Stepford Wives, by the way. Honestly, I enjoyed that book. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Um, Yeah, I hope this book becomes a bestseller. Yeah, I hope it does. (laughs) Um, I would love to see that. I'm going to be watching the Amazon charts for the next like week or two Mm -hmm. to see on the Amazon bestseller charts to see if this book is on there. If Jeff Bezos was a real gangster, he would just like totally pull it from all the algorithms, like just this book. <laughs> but I don't think he is. I mean, we're going to find out, won't we? Because he yeah. regularly hits yeah. the New York Times bestseller list. And this book particularly, I mean, it's one of the James Patterson that's going to be released in hardcover. Um, you know, not all of his, many of his books don't do that. You know, this is one of the ones that they're pushing. Yeah. So that'll be really interesting. He's got a co-writer, but his co-writer is not credited as an author on the Amazon, <laughs> uh, on the Amazon product page. Yeah. The, Man, the only reason I know James Patterson's co-writer. Yeah. The only reason I know the co-author is because the name is on the, on the, yeah. the cover image, but yeah. it's not even it's like, it's not even in the metadata. It's not in the metadata. So it's like, they're selling it as like just James Patterson. Sometimes, sometimes, Laura, I sit and think, 
do we talk about James Patterson too much on Print Run? And every time I think that, he does something else that I find wildly— He blurbs himself. Exactly. (laughs) Like he does something else that I find wildly hysterical. And so the answer continues to be no. Um, So I'm thankful for that. (laughs) Me too. I'm glad he exists. So the bestsellers that we're going to talk about today are not the James Patterson bestsellers where the name is essentially going to sell the book and it doesn't really matter what the book is. Um, The bestsellers we're going to talk about today are kind of like going from zero to 60, like the debuts, you know, the people Mm -hmm. who don't have a lot of traction in this business and how they go from nobody to bestseller. Well, how you break somebody out, right? Like that's, that's kind of the idea here, I think, is less like, you know, like what you said, um, this track that we're about to follow has less to do with taking an established name and running him or her through the process that, you know, they've, you know, like their proven track record, all these kind of things that are at their disposal. We're talking about taking somebody who, you know, like I think like a lot of our listeners who are like new authors and like getting them to um, really – you know, find success that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have if things don't break quite as right. And that's the thing with fiction, right, is um, it's so variable and it's so difficult to get a book to kind of hit all of the benchmarks that you want that end up making something go from, you know, a really good book that maybe not that many people buy but gets reviewed well um, to a book that everybody sees and actually does hit. The one that everybody sees and so a year later people are making like book forts out of it at, in like secondhand stores. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so like before we begin, I would like to preface this by saying um, if we knew for sure what created a bestseller. Right. Um, people would do it. People would do it. All the time. So all yeah. of this is just kind of like looking at what can most conceivably give you the perfect storm. I'd like to point out that there are a million exceptions to what we're going to be talking about here um, because every book is different. It just stems from a really um, organic conversation that happens in publishing all the time, which is just how do we make this work, right? Like Asians talk all the time. Hey, how can we make this book that I have here, um, you know, break out? in a way that feels really meaningful. You know, publishers sit in rooms all the time and try to figure this out. And, um, you know, the like you're saying, the answer is it's varied. It's it, elusive. It all, yeah, it's yeah. very elusive. It depends on all sorts of circumstances that a publisher often can't control. Um, but we're going to do it anyway. Exactly. But, like, the point <laughs> is that there are certain – but, like, there are certain things within a publisher's control and within an author's control or within an agent's control, you know, as the process gets going – um, that are really great things to kind of focus on. And if you break, you know, this like murky, you know, far off goal of, hey, being a, you know, best-selling author, like being a, um, you know, really commercially successful book, um, if you break that into like smaller stages and bits and if you just like focus on those smaller things, like there's, you know, there's ways to do it. And um, I don't know. I find examining that process to be worthwhile. So let's talk about our side of things first. You know, the first step in the process, that is um, how does an agent kind of help get that process going? Sure. Um, well, so let's start from square one. They acquire the book. They right? acquire the book. Offer, make an offer. Yep. Let's, yeah, so like offer a representation to whatever the book is. You know, you get it. Fine. You and the author are working. The first thing is probably it's selling it, right? And yeah. like finding the book deal, um, a lot gets settled 
in that moment when like for the book's future chances in the moment when you're selling it right how you sell it exactly how yeah. you how a book gets sold and this comes down to like a lot of what our job is um it ends up mattering a lot down the line because you really i mean in a lot of situations like advance money can dictate attention yeah i think like you know generating being able to generate interest from multiple presses you know really helps because it gets you know, it gets presses to compete a little. And if they're competing a little, maybe they're spending a little more. Maybe they're promising certain things, you know, like. And it's creating fans at the very beginning of the stage in publishing who then can talk to other publishing people about how much they loved this book. Right. So, like, at that first at that first point, what you're hoping happens, you know, as you're off shopping this book around to various presses is that you get multiple bites and you're able to play those bites off each other, right? Yep. Like that you're Also able known as. An auction. Yeah, you're able to you're able to generate you know an auction for the, you know you're able to get presses to, um, you know, try to outbid each other, a little, and that's great not only because hopefully it means a better you know deal up front for your client, but it also, like, kind of signs a check for attention as well. Yeah. Because if a publisher promises. Um, like in advances against royalties, right? So explain and, explain what that means. Well, like so when you get paid at a book deal, um, you're getting an advance on your royalty payments, right? Which means that um, you're getting all the money that you get paid when you sign your contract is run up against um, the royalty rate of your book. So like you don't get paid again until your book would have made that much money in royalty payments from sales, right? So. They're not just giving you $100,000. They're banking on you being able to sell enough books so that you would have gotten $1,000 in royalties. Right, exactly. So what happens with that is not only – so that's where the term advance comes from, right, is they're, they're effectively paying you in advance. Um, but what that also does is it puts the publisher on the hook for trying to make sure you sell that many copies, right? And when you get that – like so like the bigger advance, the larger – um, They've you know, invested. Right, exactly. They're kind of, you know, they've got more skin in the game, you know, to sell, to try to earn out. And, like, that's kind of the moment everybody's going for, right? It's like this moment when the advance gets covered, the author starts earning royalty checks, you know, on the regular because that's when everybody's making money, right? And it's – so the bigger that number is, the more money a publisher has to put on those payments up front, the more they're obligated to um, – sell the book, right? Yeah. Like more that they have to do to try to make up that cash. And the and really interesting thing about this is it's very much a gamble. You know, it can yeah. very quickly turn into like a sunken cost fallacy. Well, it's like a game of chicken, yeah. It's totally it's, because it's, you know, if they spend $100,000 on a debut mm -hmm. and then, you know, nobody's really liking it, it's not really landing at any of, you know, any of the stages that we're going later on. Mm -hmm. Like it, at that point, they're like, well, we better keep going. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in an auction and, you know, a very, very high money amount for a debut book is is a really exciting thing. But it's also a very scary thing because there's a, a lot chance. Of work to do. Well, it means it's you've got a lot of work to do as an author, but it also means that, you know, if if you don't like if your book doesn't deliver and for a lot of reasons that might not be your fault. Um, you're going to have a really hard time with the next one. It sets expectations high. Yes. Is what it does. And, and that's sets... a really great thing, but it's also a very scary thing. Yeah, um, because I think most agents would say that they would rather have their client earn out at a lesser amount than fail to earn out a higher amount, even if it means 
getting a little bit more money because, you know, the relationship is better. If yeah. their publisher – like everybody feels good when a book reaches that point of payment yeah. and suddenly the royalties start coming in because then – Every, you know, it's a success. You're a good right? investment. Exactly. So, like, it's fun to get as much money as you can, but at the same time, you don't want to um, generate the feeling with the publisher that they've overpaid. Because if they feel like they've overpaid, they're going to be less, you know, they're going to be crabby. And a crabby publisher is honestly most of the time a bad publisher. Um, yeah. So, all right. Yep. So, we've gotten our book deal. Well, so we've gotten an auction and we've gotten uh-huh. a lot of dollars. One thing I would also like to mention. Um, is if the if your debut deal is a multiple book deal? Oh, okay. Yeah. Because because then that's another that's another kind of yeah. part about their skin in the game. Yeah. You know, like they're obligated to publish your next book, mm-hmm. so they want to make the first one good so that they're not just throwing away money on the second one. Well, and that can be um, multiple things, right? Like usually that happens with like a series, you know, or something where they'll buy, um, you know, multiple. It's, you know, the, like if they know like book one is a series, they'll go ahead and like sign up books two and three or something. Sure. Right then as well and try to get it at a slightly cheaper price. But, you know, it can happen if a book is like a standalone and they just want the next one already, you know. But, um, yeah, no, like that that kind of commitment is great. And I know like having worked as an editor, um, you know, the multiple book deal often feels really good on the editorial side too because you can often feel like um, you get things at a lesser price than – um, you may would you may have been able to because there's a security exactly. So like let's say you know if I buy if I'm an editor and I buy you know two books as opposed like if I buy a book and its sequel as opposed to waiting until you know doing one by one like maybe the first book does really really well right maybe the first book's a smash hit and you've gotten the second I've already one for got nothing the, I already got the second one at a cheap price right like so I don't have to pay the smash hit price. For the second one. So, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, the two-book deal often ends up being – or the multiple-book deal ends up being something that people really yep. – that makes a lot of parties happy. And yeah. it gets everybody committed. And honestly, it's all – like, we're talking about a lot of really – you know, these – you know, like we said, like, we are discussing high advances. We're discussing two-book deals. All these things are really – you know, they're – these are like best case scenarios, right? And that's kind of what we're doing here. You can it's, definitely <clears throat> be successful with none of these things. Well, I think <laughs> well, I think that's important to reiterate is like what we're describing here is the track for a bestseller, not necessarily even just like a successful book, like a book um, that everyone is happy to have published despite maybe not getting the total commercial success you wanted. Like, you know, these are these are really good things. These are not like norms, you know. Like uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago, like a hundred thousand dollars for a piece of fiction. Like, what? Um, that Who would are? Be, what year is this? Yeah, like yeah. that would be astronomically high. Oh yeah. For what a lot of books, like I mean, really, really high for what a lot of books get. And I don't know. And that's like, okay. No, it's fine. It's just like we. It's just important to keep in mind that we're kind of talking from a perspective of you know the best case scenario and how it gets done. Um, okay, but so okay, book deal so secure. we've then sold what? we sold the book. Yeah. Then what happens mm-hmm. is well, um, I mean, in the in the production side, like from the editor's point of view, mm-hmm. right? Um, they start working, but yeah. then the I think the most important next step is that publicity and marketing start working. Well, so yeah, publicity and marketing start working, but that kind of starts from this uh, from a sales conference, mm-hmm. right? Like it happens when an editor takes his or her list of books and pitches it, 
basically, you know, to the staff. You know, they have like a launch meeting at the house. Yeah, yes. at the house, and it's not, and this gets back to is this um, where they decide what's front list and yeah, yeah, okay. like so. This is, I think, a really crucial stage, and this is something that a lot of authors and even agents don't necessarily get to be privy to, you know, and um, because it's really when a publisher decides which books are a bestseller in-house. You know, they decide which books are the ones that they, as a group, are excited about kind of off the record. It's the one they decide. um, That they're going to push. Exactly. Because, I mean, truthfully, a publisher's attentions are split. You know, they've got a ton of books on whatever list. They're probably understaffed if they're like any press on earth. Um, You know, there's not enough publicists. There's not enough marketers. People have changed. You know, they probably just had some turnover in several of those jobs. Like, um, so there becomes, and this is harsh, but some prioritizing happens, you know. And at these launch meetings and, like, when when an editor goes in and says, hey, this is what I've got for this season, um, you know, I I don't want to say winners and losers are picked. But I do want to say, like, because, winners are picked. But winners are picked, you know, like books that um, the publicists really connect with, books that, um, you know, the sales force really connects with. And that's honestly, like, the most crucial one is, like, getting the booksellers who are then going to go, like, sell to all their accounts, like Barnes & Noble and places excited about it. Like, to me, like, when I think of okay, what's the most important thing for a book to have commercial success, like, this is that moment because – if you don't have your sales representatives, and I know this sounds kind of, maybe this is like kind of boring for like authors who've never really thought about this stuff, but like this is where it happens. You know, like it's when an editor who, um, like I would say that the most important thing an editor does in their job is being able to enthusiastically and succinctly describe their books to other people. Mm. Like that to me is the most important aspect of that job. And it's one that I, don't, I think most people who enter editorial tracks don't necessarily expect um, because they think of just like editing in a room and then handing it off. But like editing involves a ton of pitching and to your coworkers, to sales reps, you know, all these people. And like, um, so if we're tracking a bestseller, this moment goes really well. And the publicists are excited and the marketers have a ton of ideas for what they're going to do. And the sales force is like, yeah, yeah, no, I can sell this. I know who, I know where this belongs. You know, I'm connecting with it. Like, um, you know, maybe they've you've got like a version of the proofs that you've been able to send everybody so that everybody can read it. You know, um, you know these kind of things they just start happening. So and, it becomes frontless, right? Exactly. It becomes it becomes frontless. Like question, because you've been to these meetings, and yeah, as no, an agent, I'm not privy to this, right, like you said. Right. Do does the the amount of money that you spend on the deal have anything to do with this particular moment? Yeah, no, it definitely like, comes do up. You, do you send somebody – Do you like when you're pitching to somebody, you're like, this book is great and also I spent $100,000 on it. It would be – so it would be less about um, – that feels like something that the editor wouldn't necessarily push as hard. But like usually at these at these meetings, like a publishing director or someone mm. is there and they are definitely aware of how, how much money you spent. <laughs> and like if they – you know, they're probably saying um, – you know, we spent X amount, this needs to be an A-list title. You know, this needs to be um, right at the top of our list. And um, so no, I would say that money definitely definitely plays in. And this is kind of the point of, like, securing that enthusiasm at the time of the deal. Like, it ends up having ramifications later on, and at least to some, um, you know, it's not the whole story, but it certainly helps. And it's, like, one more thing where, like, um, you know, 
an editor who has developed trust, hopefully, with their sales reps and with their marketers can say, hey, this is one of my big books. You know, this is one mm-hmm. of the ones that I've got a lot of skin in the game on. Um, you know, this is kind of where that happens. And um, the point here is to kind of generate in-house enthusiasm. And I know that sounds like, of course, the publisher should be enthusiastic and every single member should be um, you know, ready to work on every single book that comes in. But it often doesn't happen that way because everyone is really kind of overworked. And <laughs> no, in publishing? Yeah, no, I know. But it's it's like um, it's just key to get everybody on board in a way that's actually authentic, I think. And once you get that buzz going in-house, everybody's like best creative instincts get going. Mm. Everybody um, – yeah, I don't so, know. So is it fair to say that the only real difference between what books are front list and what books are mid list is that the front list books get a little bit more time and creativity and attention? Sure. But like, I mean, yeah, no, I would say that that's probably most of it, though I would also say that that decision is pretty multifaceted. You know, like uh, publishers often buy books that they feel they want to showcase. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they buy something that they think is particularly important to their mission, you know, their mission as a press, like, you know, a lot of presses have like, you know, a social justice mission or something that they really want to showcase. And so they make certain books, you know, they emphasize certain things. Um, But yeah, no, like that's, that's what front list means though. You're right. Is um, a little bit more attention, a little bit more money in the budget, you know, a little bit harder work. Yeah. I mean, it just means like, you know, all these, everybody involved, like it, it becomes kind of a priority for their job. Um, I would also say like at this stage, you know, right around in here, you know, one thing that doesn't really get talked about is all like the the givens, I call them, just like the things that you just expect to happen. Like, for instance, you know, like the cover design mm. right now is something that's happening and you need that to go smoothly. You need that to go well, you know, and you need, um, you know, like you need to hit all the deadlines with the copy editing and the proofs so that you can get um, the... You know, fi- you know, you can get, like, the v- files of the text to the sales force so they can read it. You know, like, there's all sorts of little boring shit <laughs> that happens. <laughs> like, that really, that really ends up mattering. You know, like, making sure that, um, you know, those – and this is where, like, editorial assistants become really, really key. Um, it's just, like, keeping all of the stupid stuff that no one thinks about except for the people in-house um, on track – like making sure that process is moving really, really streamlined. And that whoever um, did, is it is it safe to say that for a front list title, they kind of, as far as calendar goes, get priority so they don't necessarily have to rush in all of the places that right. another book might do because the other book is kind of filling the space? Right. No, okay. I mean, like it's just um, – and I'm, I mean I'm mostly speaking from like personal experience now, right, is just – um, getting the production stuff, you know, the, like the production editing done, you know, the copy editing, the proofreading, the cover design, all that kind of stuff, getting that done in a timely enough fashion so that you can show it to other people. Like that's really what it's about is like making sure that um, when sales rep X, you know, calls you up and says, hey, I remember you pitched this book. I'd love to take a look at it. Is it ready? You know, you can say, yeah, it is, and you can hand it to them because a lot of the times if you say, no, 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 the proofs are, you know, they're almost done. They'll be ready in two weeks. You know, the enthusiasm dies out, and then maybe they don't pitch it with the same degree of, you know, fervor to whoever it was. And or it's they like, don't have time to read it exa- or Exactly. Like so just like keeping that like – and I think maybe like this is a key point. It's like so much of publishing externally is thought of in terms of um, 
publicity and like fun online and like word of mouth. And we're going to get to all this kind of stuff here in a second. But um, truly, I feel like the nuts and bolts of this stuff really happens on a level that nobody outside the house really sees. It's like making sure that all of the boring things no one's ever going to think about again happen on time. And that can make a difference in sales because eventually, um, you know, it's just you're able to kind of share it faster. You're able to keep everybody happy. Like that's the other thing. Like if getting the book made, like physically made, is like a total pain in the ass, everyone <laughs> – Nobody <laughs> wants it. Like everybody's going to end up hating the book because everyone's been, you know, answering tough questions the whole time. And then it's and not like, going to sell. Right. And so like it's just – like. I don't know. It's I guess like this is kind of like my ode to the editorial assistant, you know, because um, so much of this stuff like comes down to them and um, they can be the difference. So the next state or I mean, a lot of this is happening concurrently, but it's one thing that you and I have talked about a lot this week um, is trade reviews. Mm -hmm. So particularly, um, you know, when we say trade, we're talking about. Publishers Weekly, we're talking about um, Kirkus, we're talking about School Library Journal, we're talking about um, all of all of these kind of trade magazines that review books that are read by librarians and booksellers. Yeah. Um, and particularly, you know, a starred review. Sure. A starred review. So a review only gets a star when it's really exceptional in the reviewer's eyes. Yeah. You know, they only give a certain number. Um, yeah. And so we were we were talking a little bit about like what a starred review really means. And the the fact is that, you know, for the most part, for the general readership, nobody cares. Yeah, no, I don't think it, <laughs> I don't think it matters. Like I don't think most like readers are reading like Publishers Weekly or they're not reading like Library Journal or not reading Kirkus, you know, names they've maybe heard, but like this is it's the same thing. It's generating enthusiasm amongst book buyers and booksellers, right? Yeah. Like if you can go like the thing with getting um, reviews in, and this is about the same stage that you start to get some blurbs, right? And being able to just say, hey, this bit of enthusiasm from an external source exists. Take a look at this. It's like one more reason to like follow up with the same people you're hoping to do yeah. some work on your behalf, you know? Hey, somebody somebody that we have deemed important thinks this book is good you should think it's good too. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. and being able to like send that to your sales rep and like all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's all part. And I think the key theme here, both outside the house and inside the house, is just generating positive discussion. Yeah. You know, and this is one way of generating positive discussion. So, like, getting those reviews in from sources that you know consumers don't really read. I mean, I think most people view book reviews as like a thing that like buyer like a consumer reads like they like someone who's deciding what book to buy at Barnes and mm-hmm. Noble they read but like a lot of reviews aren't for that a lot of reviews are for you know people who work at bookstores for people who work at libraries for people who um, are like more in the industry and are trying to decide how many copies of something you know to put on their shelves yeah you know how many copies to you know stock on their you know in their library and I don't know, like it's it's key. I think a bunch of you right now are listening and go, but hey, like this book has the Kirkus review printed on it. Um, yes. But in that case, they're kind of taking the trade review and kind of spinning it and turning it into an endorsement. Right. Which is an entirely right. different type of review. Right. Um, an endorsement is also 
very, very important. That's a little bit more consumer focused, yeah. though. Um, you know, that's something from another author or somebody, you know, important mm-hmm. who, you know, says something nice about the book. So hopefully they'll put it on the cover or yeah. on the first page. Yeah. Um, and that is supposed to help you as a consumer and you're browsing like online or in a bookstore. Um, and so in that way, you know, kind of the trade reviews can cross over. But I think their true, you know, for a starred review, their true power comes from the the booksellers, the librarians, all of that. Those are the people that decide the fate. Yeah. And there's... it's like th- those are the people that you need to <laughs> – like if I – if <laughs> um, I were asked, like who can you convince – like if you were able to convince like one party that this book is incredible in order to have it be successful, like – Maybe the answer is like um, Mashiko Kakatani, you know. But <laughs> no, like she's gone now. But like probably the answer is the bookseller, you know. Like yeah. probably the answer is, um, you know, the person whose job it is to tell Barnes and Noble that the book is good, so that they put it on like their new fiction table, you know, so that they put it in their front display, like you know that kind of stuff. I think it's, about I. So I I was at a trade conference a couple of years ago, and I sat in on a little talk, and somebody said. Um, and it's something that I will remember for the rest of my days. It said, um, publicity gets a book into a bookstore. Booksellers get the book out of the bookstore. Hmm. And I think I find that to be just so lovely and so simple and so true. Well, that's interesting. Because it's it's like the bookstore, the booksellers that are really excited about the book and will put it on a display and will write their little like handwritten like, I recommend yeah. this. Or like yeah. somebody asked them what they should read. They yeah. put it in their hands. Yeah. Like that's what makes a book really successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you can have all of the the publicity in the world, but if nobody's actually like if everybody's just seeing it and nobody's taking it home with them. Then it's not a bestseller. Then it's just a highly visible brick. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I mean, that's a perfect segue, I think, to taking to taking an object that goes from, you know, a brick of paper to a real living object, which is word of mouth. Yeah. Right. Like this. The grassroots. Is, so this is about when um, people start talking about the book, right? This is when suddenly the author is going to start getting asked to. You know, start being active on social media and start mm-hmm. maybe doing a few interviews here and there. Start, you know, maybe a, like a blog tour or something, you know. Maybe this is plan when an event. Right. This is when you're going to get a cover reveal. Um, so hopefully you've gotten that taken care of. And I know I keep I keep like sounding like these things aren't givens because I've just been in so many situations where like, man, we were already in like the cover like just wasn't there, you know, or like the proofs needed like one more pass all of a sudden. And it's like, yeah, so they're like, not always given. Yeah. No, like I don't like, it's really tough to like take this stuff for granted. I'm just like thinking of all sorts of nightmares I've had. <laughs> I'm glad um, that this is uh, yeah. just very soothing, no, a very, soothing yeah, episode no, this for is, you. This is very stressful. Um, but <laughs> no, but this is the point when people start talking, right? And like, that's one other thing that you use reviews for and you use blurbs and even like the Kirkus and, you know, um, you know, library journal and stuff. Like it's content you can tell people about. Yeah. And one thing that sells books better than anything else is word of mouth, mm. especially in this, um, you know, this crowdsourced age that you and I keep talking about nearly every episode. Um, getting people to talk about the book is key. You know, this is when you start doing the, you know, the giveaways of the galleys, you know. And so uh, maybe that's like a good place to go next is eventually you're going to get um, – you know, galley copies, and yep. you're going to start sending also known those. as the arcs or advanced reader copies. Sure, um, just like the bound proofs, basically. Yeah. And 
you know, getting those in the hands of not just like all the major review outlets, but also like the blogs and like the social media people that people like to hear from, you know, all that kind of stuff. Sending um, them to the New York Times. Exactly. Like yeah. so like big and small now. Like it used to be you would just take your galleries and you would send them to like the establishment. You know, you would send them to um, all of the kind of major book review sites. But now it's like because em- the emphasis on who people are listening to for their book criticism has changed, um, getting it to the person with a bazillion uh, Twitter followers is probably like just as good of a move, you know, because you can get that person talking um, about the book and um, you can kind of just go from there. But um, yeah. yeah, I would say I would say that this is to to generate buzz like that, to, to generate that word of mouth. I know I was talking about how um, traditional traditional kind of marketing gets a book into a bookstore. And that's a big part of it. You know, people see it. If people kind of think that everybody's talking about it, even if they're just like paid ads, yeah. Um, yeah. then people start thinking that people are talking about it. And then people actually do start talking about yeah. it. And then that's really exciting. Um, you know, so sending it to those bloggers, sending it to the New York Times and having the New York Times review it or, you know, some other some other yeah. journal um, where they are talking about it and engaging with it and kind of, you know, maybe recommending it, but more of just like having a discussion about it. So you think about it and you know about it. That discussion, um, this is kind of, I think, like the largest theme that we're talking about here which is that both internally and with your readers, you just want people talking about this book. You want it to be on the tip of everybody's tongues at all times, um, whether it's for, hey, which book should we spend this little bit extra of a marketing budget on? Or, you know, in the case of like reviews, like do we have, you know, a review or a blurb or something that we can send out, you know, to these channels that we have a social media presence in and get everybody a little bit more excited, you know? Um, and we're so – I'm just trying to think of like our timeline now. We're like nearing publication, yeah. right? We're getting there. So beyond the reviews, I think one of the things that we can't forget about and that nobody ever really thinks about is actually the distribution. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you're with a, you know, midsize or even just like a really good established small publisher, let alone a big five, you're going to have distribution in place. You know, your your book is going to be available for order through, you know, Ingram or Baker and Taylor or IPG or something that will allow bookstores and libraries to order your book in and to get it. Um, What that means is that, you know, that editorial assistant will have been doing a really good job at this point. (laughs) They will have made sure that your book goes to press on time. They will make sure that it's printed correctly and on time. Mm -hmm. They'll make sure that it is shipped with the appropriate amount of time so that when your book comes out, it is on the floor that day. That's so – that sounds so basic, um, <laughs> the idea of, hey, today's publication day. Are the books available to be bought? But like, man, like you would be surprised. Um, I mean if you, you think about all of the buzz from the last few Harry Potter books yeah. and about going to yeah. the bookstore at midnight yeah. and then having them, you know, the bookstore owners like cut open the boxes that said do not open until midnight on this day. Yeah. Like the only reason that, that that buzz and that excitement and those sales happened was because the books were shipped there. Did you see as a quick as a quick aside, speaking yes. of Harry Potter and day one sales, um, that like print sales for books, I don't remember the exact figure of this article today, but like on the year are down like not like not a little percent, like 
double digit percentage what? from like the past year and it's because there isn't a Harry Potter book dropping like in August like there was last year I think like Cursed Child or something yeah. dropped last year um and they're like chalking it up entirely to there not being a Rowling book but that's like awesome <laughs> that's awesome awesome is is one well word I mean for it's 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 um, awesome as in but, I am odd yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um but like the point is exactly to what you're saying that um, that opening moment when the book is available, like you've spent months talking about it, a lot of people, you know, like there's pre-orders at this point, right? Yep. Let's 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 put yeah. a pin in and talk about pre-orders for a second. Yeah. Um, pre-orders, you know, as far as like we we've talked about all that it takes, and at this point, it's really just to make a book successful. Mm-hmm. The really big thing that pushes it into bestseller territory is pre-sales, mm-hmm. and that's because. You know, a book can be on pre-sale for six months and people will, you know, even if they buy, you know, a couple of copies a day, that starts gaining traction. And those sales all count for the first week book sales once the book comes out. That's how they decide. That's honestly like that's how they decide what's a what's a bestseller. What's on. is because, yeah. yeah, every book that you sell for pre-orders for the last. So, you know, who we just talked. We just we just had this conversation. We talked to Shay Serrano. We did. About this. And what did he say? I mean, he has been harping online and on our show, I think, a little bit um, about the idea that um, the way to hit that New York Times spot is to get as many pre-orders as possible because it all condenses into one week's worth of tracking. Correct. And so his big thing, and you see him online, is trying to get that pre-order number way, way up because he wants to debut at whatever spot. And he knows that you've got an infinite amount of time. Like, you can take... A week and stretch it into several months beforehand, you know, and I don't know. It's interesting. Like, it's, it's interesting yeah. to see. Um, and the great thing is when a book is on the bestseller list in the first week debut, a lot of people will see that and go, everybody's buying this book, right. not that's knowing that people have been pushing it for right. six whole months. Right. That's the thing is like that that big debut moment can end up paying a lot of dividends down the line because it's, again, it's one more thing that gets people talking. In the second printing, if you can put across the top, number one number New one York bestseller, Times exactly. bestseller. Like you can reprint with a slight different cover line, all that kind of stuff. So like this kind of crux moment of publication day, you know, kind of cashing in on all that enthusiasm that you've hopefully been building. Um, it's key. Yeah. If you can put bestseller on the cover, more people are going to buy. And then it just keeps snowballing. So a lot of this, you know, it becomes a very, very big, you know, it's a very big gamble in the beginning. But then it becomes just kind of like keeping to roll the snowball yeah. and make it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've, you know, had experience and, and have read a lot of places where like a book doesn't reach true market saturation after until, you know, two to three years of continuous marketing effort. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea is that if you do really well at the beginning, the rest of those two years are going to be really successful. And at the end, you're going to end up at a better place than you would have normally if you were just kind of rolling along normally. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just trying to think. So we've kind of hit publication day here. Um, other things that obviously matter are like, you know, getting that one, you know, like just one like good review somewhere big, yeah. you know, like it's nice to get that a little bit beforehand um, leading up to the day it publishes. Um, it's obviously I think, you know, this is outside of a publisher's control, but like if your book just like strikes the right thematic moment, mm-hmm. you know, and this is where like publishing fiction becomes such lightning in a bottle, you know, like getting the book that um, 
And this is honestly like I remember when we did like our Man Booker Award prediction show. <laughs> like I picked I picked uh, um, the sellout. The sellout. Um, because it just felt like the right book at the right moment. Yeah. Right? Like, that's what made me think, like, hey, this is the thing. Like, and this was a book that had been written, you know, years beforehand, right? Like, this was not something he just whipped up, you know? Like, this was something that he had written. But all of a sudden, it just once again felt like the right book for the right moment in time beyond books. You know, like, just in the world, this is what people were thinking about was this sort of thing. And it hit. And people bought it because it was just the relevant book at the right time. And that's obviously something that publishers will try to control. You know, they'll try to tie it to whatever it is. But really, that's just a feeling that either happens or it doesn't. Yeah. You know? It's the je ne sais quoi. And yeah. I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, the the market is designed to kind of catch on that. Like, yeah. if you think about Amazon, like, you know, the, the whole Amazon algorithm thing is this big black hole, essentially, right? Yeah. But the one thing that we do know is that once you reach 50 reviews on Amazon, mm-hmm. which they don't let you post reviews until the book comes out, mm-hmm. once you post, once you get 50 reviews, you all of a sudden start showing up in the Amazon algorithms yep. and you start getting suggested to people, yep. you know, saying, you know, with Goodreads, yep. if if you are put, if you're read by a lot of people, you're discovered more and then you're put on lists and you're discovered even more and yep. it kind of, it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. So that's where that grassroots thing beyond word of mouth becomes really valuable. Well, so much of this is the snowball effect, you know, yeah. it's like getting that just spark of enthusiasm that can just build on itself is, is so key. And it's human, and so it's unpredictable. But um, I mean, that's how it happens. I mean, yeah. I think that this. I mean, this is kind of it. It's. I mean, I wish I could look at all my books and be like, "This is exactly what we're doing, and it's going to be a bestseller." Well, if there was some like <laughs> meat, you know, and eventually, so I was about to say, "Well, if there was a process, everyone would do it." But in a way, there does become a process. You take because then you take that author's track record. And channels and all the things you did for the first time and you do it again. For like book, James Patterson. Yeah, exactly. For book two or any like just like house author who just sells and sells and sells, yeah. right? But like we're talking like how do you take each – a new author each time and do this? And it's tricky. Like it's yeah. really hard. But Everybody um, has their own – algorithm to making them successful and some people that algorithm will never actually equal anything and like the difference each time is um, the conversation they're able to generate like that's what changes from author to author is maybe you know author x is able to really connect to some issue of the day with their book and maybe author y is able to really show themselves to be you know get everybody talking about what kind of you know prose artist they are you know like whatever whatever it is um, it ends up being a unique conversation surrounding that person's specific book and work um, that hopefully becomes fuel enough for everybody to talk about it enough that sales get generated. So the pub tip is sort of related <laughs> this week because I know that all of this might be really inspiring to some of you, but also some of you might be sitting there going, this is never going to happen to me. This is awful. I hate this. Um, and so my job to you is to say, never fear, um, because you need to always be writing. So what we talked about here is a lot of stuff that the author has no control over. Um, and the role of an author is very, very, very specific. And it's specific to the sales side uh-huh. of the publication process. Yeah. Being an author is very different from being a writer. 
And it's really, really easy when you're a writer and all of a sudden you're querying or you're going off, you know, you've got an agent and you're going off on submission or you just sold a book or even, you know, your first book is going to be out in a few weeks. It's really easy to kind of put your writer identity down and just kind of go, well, I'm an author now. Um, But the thing is, is that way lies madness. Um, being an author is scary and it's terrifying and none of it lays in your hands. And, and none of it is writing. And yeah. That's the thing. And none of it is writing. Is like, and so that's where I think the key is here. It's like even as you're, you know, promoting yourself in this one way, stick to, you know, the work. Stick to the writing. You know, keep writing really anything. You know, just keep that muscle memory going. Yeah. And this goes for people who aren't published who are maybe – are like in the process of querying or something, you know, like even those who um, basically anytime you're done with something and are then in the process of like showing it to others at whatever stage it is. Start over. Just like be working on, you know, it's time. And even if you like don't have the next book in you or something, just like keep working on something because that muscle memory is so key to kind of keep up. And um, even just like the smallest bit of maintaining progress can really end up paying dividends over time. Yeah, and it and it will also keep you from going crazy. You know, it's it's <laughs> yeah, easy it's to go well. Thing to do. Yeah. It's it's very easy to go from you know like oh I'm a writer now and then you're gonna go no I'm an author. But yeah. the thing is is like if you get lost in being an author, you can only continue being an author if you continue being a writer. Yeah. And if you let being a writer fall by the wayside, yeah. then you being an author just kind of shrivels up. Yeah. And then it's not fun for anyone. Um, so always <laughs> be writing. <laughs> ABW, folks. ABW's. Thank you so much for joining us on this, our 42nd, holy cow, episode yeah. of Print Run. Remember, a query episode is not going live this Thursday. Sorry, I'm going to be selling books to editors. New York! <laughs> so look out for that as well as our next um free episode on Tuesday, August 22nd. Send us your queries because we haven't recorded it yet um, to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week. 